Well, welcome to this Sundays in July seminar titled Weep with Those Who Weep, How to Comfort Those Who Have Experienced Loss. And as you know, especially during the COVID last couple of years, more and more people have been confronted with the stark reality of death and dying, and many of us have to admit that sometimes we just don't feel prepared to be able to deal with what it is that is their struggle and the reality of that struggle. So it's my hope that this seminar is going to offer you a biblical approach to shepherding those uh, in love who are going through a crisis, who are suffering, who have fear, and who experience loss by just examining a few of the basic highlights of the duties, the believer's duty to weep with those who weep. We have a lot of information. I might have too much information, but I'm going to go through it, hopefully not too quickly, but succinctly enough to where you can grasp some of these principles. And of course, we know that that saying, weep with those who weep, comes from Romans 12, 15. You don't have to turn there for time's sake, but just so you know, in Romans 12, 15, it is the Christian's um, ability to be empathetic, sympathetic, and not indifferent to those who are in pain that is the focus of that section of Scripture. And the word weep in Romans twelve fifteen actually means to shed tears. It's a very, very dramatic word, to shed tears, to show evidence of the Christian's capacity to feel deeply for others who are hurting. So that will be our starting place this morning. The issue before us is Christian empathy. Christian empathy. How to address the pain of others when that's not the pain that you're experiencing yourself. And of course, the greatest example of all that in the New Testament is in the life of our Lord in John 11. Uh, Again, you can go there if you want, but just in brief to say, 2,000 years ago, our Lord gave us an example of what it is to weep with those who weep. He was at a funeral. It was a woman uh, who was weeping there, wrestling with the death of her brother. There was a whole congregation of people who had been there, family and friends who had loved the family of the deceased and were seeking God for understanding. And in the days of our Lord, sometimes people stayed at a funeral for a week at a time to be able to kind of comfort family members. And so Christ is at this funeral service, this time of reflection and mourning, to make the most vital point to us in terms of what is true empathy The man who had died was his friend, Lazarus, and the Bible tells us that Jesus loved him. It was not an impersonal encounter with some kind of stranger. There was an intimate, emotional moment in the life of our Savior. And when Jesus saw the tomb where Lazarus had been laid, and when he witnessed the weeping of all the closest friends around him, the Bible tells us in the shortest verse ever recorded in the New Testament, Jesus wept. Jesus wept. In verse 33 of that same chapter, it says, Jesus was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. In other words, he groaned deep emotion. He gave an involuntary cry from his heart. Some translators even translate this verse, he was deeply moved and visibly distressed. And we we understand that because, again, Jesus loved him. Jesus loved him. Jesus was also very close to his sisters, Martha and Mary. And before Lazarus died, they had gone to Jesus and they had asked him to come to Bethany because they knew that he would help. And the Bible tells us that Jesus loved them too. And so even though Jesus would momentarily raise Lazarus from the dead, a miracle of unbelievable proportions, still he wept. 
He didn't rationalize in his divine heart, why spill a tear over this death when I can bring a smile to everybody's face by raising him from the dead? No, he didn't do that. He still allowed himself to feel the depth of the brokenness of all around him, for he is our sympathetic high priest for those who believe. Now, I just illustrate that truth this morning uh, with that because I want you to know that it's the heart of our Savior to weep with those who weep as well, to empathize with those that are going through loss. But I want to go to a very unlikely portion of Scripture to spend the majority of our time, and that is I want you to go to the book of Job. Go to the book of Job, and we're going to begin in chapter 2 with something that maybe some of you may not be that familiar with, But Job chapter 2 is going to speak of the friends of Job. And we're going to look at what they did well and what they did not do well. And how it is that we can learn from their experience. So Job chapter 2. Let's begin just in verse 11. Then Job's three friends heard of all this calamity that had come upon him. So they came, each one from his own place. Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Thermonite, they all made their appointment together to come to console him and to comfort him. Then they lifted up their eyes at a distance and did not recognize him. And they lifted up their voices and wept. And each one of them tore his robe and they threw dust over their heads towards the sky. Then they sat down on the ground with him For seven days and seven nights, with no one speaking a word to him, for they saw that his pain was very great. So here are three friends of Job, and I say that because these men prophetically are always known as the worst friends of Job. But the truth is they come to us originally as the greatest friends of Job. And they did so in this introduction of their names were taught that they really did love Job. They really did care about his calamity. They traveled unbelievable distances, according to what historians tell us, that might be considered more than we would ever venture to perform what was a sympathetic intervention of sorts. So these are not critics. These are not secret enemies who came to him. They wept and they ripped their clothes and They saw that God had allowed this to happen to Job, and they were torn in two. They were speechless. They could not fathom the depth of their friend's suffering. For seven days, think about that, for seven days not one of them spoke. For seven days they had no words to this seemingly cursed friend. It's commonly said that that was the wisest thing these friends ever did, and tragically that is true, as we shall see. There have been times when this portion of Scripture has helped me more than any other in my own ministry at the hospital or at grave sites. I've had the privilege of sitting in the living room of a man staring at a television with him just side by side saying nothing, saying nothing at all because I knew that what he needed was not at that time words from me, advice from me. He had lost his wife. His wife was precious to him. What he needed in that moment as Job's friend's teach us, and what I need to acknowledge is that something much bigger in the room is happening than my words. My words of consolation may or may not help in that moment. To speak at that point would to be specifically marginalizing the profundity of that moment. Talk sometimes is cheap. We have to acknowledge that. Speech becomes sometimes trivial. 
And the only thing that can humanly help us at times is silence and presence and prayer. So we begin this positively, looking at they counsel their friends with tears and not with speech. They counsel their friend with silence, not with speech. Why? Because the last sentence of what we just read in verse 13 tells us, they saw that his pain was very great. The greater the pain, the greater the silence. Now, there's much more that we're going to say, but I do want you to dwell on that. I do want you to know that to to come to someone's aid, sometimes we feel the inclination so much so that we need to speak, that we need to share, that we need to tell them uh, chapter and verse of what it is that we've been studying lately to try to apply it as a balm to their wound. But the truth is, we could learn a lot from just pondering this section of Scripture as they did and how their hearts were open to their friend. And instead of looking at the issue from an issue of silence alone, I now want to venture into another section of Job that's going to tell us what not to do. They now have empathized with him. They have gone there in their silence for a week, being able to be heartbroken with their friend, crying with him, torn in their hearts, But now we're going to go to a different experience of them in chapter 4 and 5. So turn to chapter 4 of Job as we begin to look at this other side of the coin. As we come to both chapter 4 and 5 of the book of Job, we come to a text that not only is associated with giving bad counsel to friends, but also come to a text where we're going to find there's even a kind of a false prophecy given to a man of unparalleled suffering as if it was counsel from the Most High God. So we're going to look at this morning what seems to be, I think in many people's lives, a surprisingly unknown text, because not only is the manner of the friend's counsel going to be questioned, but the source of their counsel is going to be questioned as well. So what we do this morning is we're coming to examine the issue of how bad counseling and bad theology unintentionally can come to us even from the best of friends. Now, if you could title this message differently than weep with those who weep, you could say the bad counsel of a good friend, the bad counsel of a good friend, because that's exactly what we're going to see here in chapter four and five. And sometimes even a good friend can do some pretty severe damage unintentionally unless they are guided rightly by the word of God. So today we're going to be introduced to the first of three very interesting, very confusing, I should say, friends who have come alongside our man named Job to offer him some unrequested instruction. In fact, we're going to be invited by the Spirit this morning of God to sit at the feet of our righteous hero so that we might vicariously suffer with him as he gleans insight from these so-called counselors of celestial proportion. And I say that because we're going to suffer with him is only because one can tell us at first blush exactly what is beneficial to these friends and what is downright blasphemy. And we're going to see this, I think, together. What seems at first to be sound advice, and I want you to apply it to your own lives as we say this, upon further investigation is really counsel from the bowels of hell. And I mean that literally, as you shall see. Now... If this is the first time you've been in the book of Job for a long time, or maybe ever, let me inform you, at this point in our inspired drama, we have these three friends who have traveled great distances because they have heard of the suffering of the man named Job. And Job, as you may remember in your understanding of the scripture, was a man who had lost everything that was precious to him, save his wife. He lost all of his possessions, which were great since he was the greatest man in the East. 
He lost all of his servants to two separate terrorist attacks that happened. He lost all of his ten children to one large, inexplicable disaster of nature. He lost all of his health to an outbreak of severe boils and skin disease, which came over him in one night. In fact, so great was his pain, as we saw, that he couldn't even speak. They couldn't even speak for seven days. Seven days they wept many tears on behalf of the fallen father. For seven days they couldn't even lift up their voices because of the massive devastation and the excessive pain that they saw Job to be in. They literally, again, tore their clothes, poured dust on their heads in anguish, as we've already witnessed. But after the seven days of silence... After an entire chapter of just listening and listening to their friend lamenting in chapter 3 over his broken life, wishing he had never been born, wishing that he had died, eventually they begin to speak. And the problem is, as you shall see, that some of their counsel is uninformed, uninspired, presumptuous, and downright insensitive, to say the least. And that's what we're going to see together. It doesn't stop them, however, from offering their counsel, even for one moment. Just think of your friends. Uh, sometimes unsolicited information is the worst kind. And yet, no matter what you might think about these friends, you're going to see that it does seem as if it comes from a place of care. In the beginning, they seem to have Job's best interest in mind when they speak. It's just that they don't understand that he didn't have anything to do with his plight. He didn't have anything to do with the suffering that he endured. They don't know that he's upright to the core. They don't know that he's twice called blameless by God himself before Satan in the heavenly council. In fact, truth be known, they don't know a lot. And that's something that we need to understand as well. But what they do know is that their friend needs help. They know he's in great pain. And they know that he could use some good old-fashioned counsel. The problem is they just can't be sure how to offer it. They speak from their own experience like most of us, and unfortunately, their experience is fatally flawed. They speak from their own understanding of God, yet unfortunately, their understanding of God is limited and ultimately damning. And what Job really needs is some good old theology and tender-hearted care, but unfortunately, neither one of them deliver it to Job. Now, the first friend to enter the stage of the great mystery play that we have before us is Eliphaz. He is the first wise man to speak into the life of Job. And he's going to come to us as the quintessential sympathetic sage. In fact, if I were going to label him with any kind of title, it would be Eliphaz the mystic. Eliphaz the mystic. Why do I say that? Because of all the friends that will follow Job, if you read this wonderful saga, he, above all the others, tends to gain insights into the human condition from some very interesting places that I'm going to encourage you not to go. Now, historically, we're told by Jewish interpreters that Eliphaz represents what they considered sound orthodox theology, sound orthodox theology, because in their minds, he defended the traditional but erroneous doctrine of retribution. Let me just set this up for you. Maybe you've never heard of that before, but if you have, let me remind you. The doctrine of retribution, as we have noted in the past, is that strand of bad theology that says God always blesses the righteous and always curses the wicked. The principle that's going to be contested over and over all the way through this book of Job, which means that Eliphaz's theology is flawed from the outset. He's coming into the situation thinking that Job has sinned. Yet even some ancient interpreters 
though they're all torn about about his ill treatment of Job, they have actually found some helpful insights into these comments that we're going to go over. In fact, the great Martin Luther used his text in his polemic against the Roman Catholic Church, quoting Eliphaz when contesting their Pelagian view of one can be justified by one's works. So even Martin Luther actually borrowed from him sometimes, thinking that what his counsel was saying was good. But I think you're going to see, as we study this morning, that this most of what Eliphaz is going to offer us is really no better than just personal insight and not biblical insight. And I'm going to set this up for you. In fact, it's highly debatable if Eliphaz and the friends even knew Yahweh, if they even understood the true God of the monotheistic world. Now, true, some of them had rid themselves of polytheism, dominated the Mesopotamian world in which they lived 4,000 years ago. But whether or not the beginning of the story they knew the Lord of Lords in the book of Job is very, very unlikely. But what does this ancient friend of Job give us? I'm going to say our six mistakes. The six mistakes, if you're taking notes, of Eliphaz. Six blunders, if you will. Not only in the way he spoke, but in the way he believed. Six ways not to counsel, okay? Six ways not to counsel your friends. And by hopefully seeing what not to do, we're going to realize what to do. Now, granted, all of these mistakes don't carry the same amount of weight in them, but you're going to see the core mistakes are terrifying to the extreme and provide us, I think, a vital example of caution for our counseling as well. So let's just start by looking at the text from a more specific way and then go into a large, more graphic uh, issues as we continue. The first mistake of Eliphaz, if you're taking notes, the first mistake was, number one, his counsel was not solicited, Okay. His counsel was not solicited. Look at Job 4, verse 1. Actually, into 2. Then Eliphaz answered and said, If one... Oh, actually, let me just start there. Then Eliphaz the the Temanite answered and said... Stop there. You would think, why why is that an issue? Why is that an issue? Why would you stop me before I even get to verse 2? Because this is a very, very subtle mistake in chapter 3. You have Job saying over and over again, Why? Job 3.11, why did I not die at birth? Job 3.12, why did the knees receive me and why the breasts that I should suck? Job 3.20, why is light given to him who suffers? Implied in Job 3.23, why is light given to a man whose way is hidden? So it's clearly not impossible for one to think, well, maybe Job is actually asking his friends a question. Maybe he wants his friends to answer him. He answers, in fact, clearly it must have been the case because when Eliphaz believed, because Job 4.1 says, he answered, he answered and said. He answered, listen to this, he answered what he believed was Job's question. But interestingly enough, most commentators are clear that Job wasn't asking for anything. Job wasn't asking a question. It was rhetorical at least, not even God for a demand. He wasn't even speaking to God yet. He was just crying out to the stars above and to his own soul. And he was just restlessly wondering, why, why, why is this happening to me? Now, some people might say, given that premise, well, surely Eliphaz didn't know that. He was just trying to help, just chalk it up to experience. But again, it's agreed by most that the reason Eliphaz spoke first was out of respect for his age and his place in life. He was old enough to know better. He was, knew his opinion wasn't being asked for. He knew the great wisdom wasn't being sought out by Job, but he was just so compelled in his mind to open his mouth. 
He speaks almost sheepishly at first, and intentionally, kindly, but with the undertone of a form of political correctness that seems insincere at best. He cautiously enters into dialogue expecting possibly a negative reaction from Job, but then he says at the end of verse 2, but who can refrain from speaking? If one tries a word with you, you will become weary, but who can hold back, verse 2, from speaking? Eliphaz is unable to restrain himself. His counsel is not solicited. Are you following? Maybe he just didn't like how Job was speaking about the hedge that God had created around him, if God was limited his suffering. Maybe he didn't like the theological implications that were flying in Eliphaz's face by allowing a man to cry out to God over his sinful circumstances. Maybe he just wanted to cut that off. Either way, his first mistake was, don't give advice unless it's asked for. Does that make sense? Does that ever happen to you? Don't give advice unless it's asked for. I understand that they all waited for seven days to speak. I understand that they all wept and tore their clothes. But how long does a man or a woman have to restrain their lips when friends' graves are still freshly dug and their tombstones are behind him? Job is speaking to them on the top of this dung heap and his children's graves are behind him and yet Eliphaz is going to address his situation. How long does it take for a man to wait to share his precious insights about living when his friend is sitting on the top of a city dump with other skin-diseased outcasts scraping his worm-infested boils with broken pottery? He waits till he's asked to speak. That's the first mistake. Does that make sense? The first mistake. Solomon was right when he wrote, How delightful is a timely word. Proverbs 15, 23. How delightful is a timely word. Pleasant words, Proverbs 16, 24, are a honeycomb, sweet to the soul and healing to the bones. He also wrote, Proverbs 12, 25, Anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, but a good word makes it glad. Solomon was so warning of this deadly power of words, he also wrote in Proverbs 15, 4, A soothing tongue is a tree of life. But perversion in it crushes the spirit. So Eliphaz should have known better. Eliphaz should have known better. He made an offer to help without being solicited. Second mistake. Second mistake Eliphaz the wise made was not only was his counsel not solicited, but number two, his empathy was not offered. His empathy was not offered. His counsel not solicited and his empathy not offered. Now, this is very, very subtle, but it's very important. You're going to have to guide me or help me guide you. Eliphaz didn't really empathize. Perhaps he couldn't. Uh, Perhaps no one save Jesus Christ himself could have understood Job's pain. He begins to speak, as you're going to see, with a complimentary word of commendation, which seems to be wise at first. Ironically, Eliphaz is the most compassionate of the scholars and of the friends that are going to address Job, if you can imagine. He's going to give Job the most sympathy of all the other men in this group that have traveled these great distances to get Job back on track. We say that because at first his words seem helpful. Job chapter 4, verse 3 and 4. Behold, you have disciplined many, and you have strengthened limp hands. Your words have helped the stumbling to stand, and you have encouraged feeble knees. What a great 
affirmation in the beginning of Job's character. What an incredible encouragement to Job's counseling ability. You, you have been wonderful, Job, in your counseling to others. You were there when weak hands needed to be held. You were there when others couldn't even stand. They were so thrown by life's hard knocks. You were there when feeble knees needed to be strengthened. So that was a wise way to start his counsel. Affirm what is true. Make sure that the one who needs help is built up in truth before you slip in astonishment. Or I should say admonishment. There's an old saying, I don't know if you know this, but boy, I've lived by this so much. No one cares how much you know until they know how much you care. Have you ever heard that? No one cares how much you know until they know how much you care. And yet... Eliphaz seems to be complimenting Job really so he can just justify his own intervention more than anything else. Why do I say that? Look at Job 4, 5. But now, he says, it has come to you and you are impatient. It touches you and you are dismayed. In other words, you're really good with counseling other people, but you don't practice what you preach. You can't certainly dish it out, but it doesn't seem as if you can take it. What? What, I mean, what, what did he really just say that? Is that really his implication? Look at five, verse 5 again. But now it has come to you. But now it has come to you. It touches you, and you are dismayed. Eliphaz, are you equating the loss, listen to this, of everything that's precious to Job? Are, are you saying that all of his possessions and all of his crushed children and all of his murdered servants and all of his precious health with the vilest sickness imaginable from the hand of Satan more than any other counseling session ever, are you saying now it, that it has come to you as if those were kind of scenarios that Job had helped others with in the past? You know what? He couldn't even begin to fathom the darkness that had happened to Job. He couldn't even put his pinky around the tremendous chasm that cut this man's soul in two. And how could he think about it? How could anyone empathize with such hardship and devastation? How do you go to a Jewish man and tell him that you understand the pain of how he lost his mother and father and sister and brother in Auschwitz? How do you do that? I saw a pastor one time in a documentary, long explanation, I won't get into it. He was going up to an Auschwitz victim who had survived. He was talking to them in some kind of Christian conference, and he bent down to this little old broken Jewish lady, and he said, uh, sir, this, she has survived the Holocaust. He goes, well, God bless you. I thought, what? what is he saying? Why is he saying it like that? It was shocking. It was, it was like, does he not understand who he's talking to? You can say, I know it was hard, but then you don't say, you need to get a stiff upper lip. You, you, don't, you, don't, you don't sit there and say, the war's over, isn't it? Move on. You, you can't, but you, you must know that you can't, you can't break the second code of counseling, which is to refuse empathy. You cannot refuse empathy. You must close your mouth, weep, and never bring an accusation before a man like Job, at least until the grass has grown over his children's graves. Warren Wearsby puts it this way, A wise counselor and comforter must listen with his heart and respond to feelings as well as to words. You do not heal a broken heart with logic. You heal a broken heart with love. Eliphaz didn't offer empathy. Third, third mistake Eliphaz made. 
Not only was his counsel not solicited and his empathy not offered, but third, his conclusions were not reliable. His conclusions were not reliable. His assumptions, if you will. And look at this in chapter 4, verse 6. He goes on to say, Is not your fear of God your confidence and the integrity of your ways your hope? Now, what you may have noticed here is a very subtle but intentional assumption that if Job, who's on the top of this dung heap, he's got sores pouring out, he looks as if he's a man that has been shriveled into nothing, his children are gone, his wife has told him to curse God and die, and he goes to this man and he says that I think something's wrong. I think if you had integrity in your life, then you would have confidence and hope even after the depth of what happened to you. What? What? He assumes, this is very, very important for counseling, he assumes at the very beginning of his thinking that Job was in sin. He just figured that was true. And he based it solely on what he believes, again, to be this principle of retribution. Go to Job 5 real quick, 5.17. Job 5.17. Eliphaz makes this assertion, Behold... Speaking to Job, how blessed is the man who God approves. So do not reject the discipline of the Almighty. Do not reject the discipline of the Almighty. So clearly Eliphaz believes that Job is being reproved by God. He's being disciplined by God for his sin. But how does he know that? How does he know that? What kind of assumption is that to make? He can't. He absolutely, positively cannot know what he cannot know, but he assumes it anyway. Go back to Job 1 just to see in verse chapter 1, verse 8. Then Yahweh said to Satan, Have you set your heart upon my servant Job? For there's no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Look at Job chapter 2, verse 3. And Yahweh said to Satan, Have you set your heart upon my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. And he still holds fast his integrity. So Job is a righteous man. This is clearly what God says. This is clearly what the narrator of the book says as well. He is a righteous man who was not being disciplined by God who is not being reproved for his sin, who did not lose everything that he held dear because of anything that he did wrong, but only because, ironically, of what he did right. Now, there are clear reasons why Eliphaz believed in such an error, and we're going to see that in a little while. But safe to say, he assumed. He assumed. Again, with Jesus, with with his disciples, they pointed to a blind man, and he asked them, the disciples did to our Lord, who sinned, his parents or himself, that he would be born blind? That's John 9, 2. They even believed, the disciples, about the principle of retribution. It was deep within the Jewish culture. And Jesus had to open their minds, and he said, neither. Neither. Neither he or his parents sinned. Neither he or his parents caused his blindness. It was for the glory of God could be manifest. I'm going to heal him so he was born blind. So, Why was Lazarus allowed to die? John 11. So I, as the God-man, could raise him up from the grave. You don't know the purposes or the reasons for the conflict and for the crisis in any person's life. If you're taking notes, James 5, 13 to 14 sets this 
in place for us. Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with the oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will save the one who is sick. And the Lord will raise him up. And, here's the key word, if he has committed sins, if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. So just because you're sick, just because you're crushed, just because some horrible event has happened to you, you cannot assume that that is a discipline of the Lord. Sometimes it is and sometimes it isn't. Again, the principle of retribution isn't a fixed principle. You don't know why things happen. The way they happen. And I got to tell you, and I'm sure you've lived this way before too, sometimes people will come up to you and in their good-hearted sense of just disconnect, they will sit there and they will assert that you are guilty of something and it just is crushing. It's crushing. You knowing your own life and them not knowing your own life and they try to give you some kind of counsel that's not according to how life really works. Don't assume, does this make sense? Anything. Don't assume anything. J. Adams, the noted biblical counselor, writes, They, speaking of Job's friends, refused to listen to Job when he protested that their assumptions and therefore their conclusions were wrong. They failed to follow the biblical maxim that says that successful leading counselors always use, love believes all things. In love, the biblical counselor doubts the word of the counselee only when the facts demand him to do so. In other words, you can't make the assumption that you know what you don't know and never come into the situation thinking, I'm going to solve your problems, I'm going to reveal your sin, I'm going to set you straight because I have wisdom that I do not possess. There's a fourth mistake as I'm moving quickly here. A fourth mistake Eliphaz made that was not only was his counsel not solicited and his empathy not offered and his conclusions not reliable, but... Next, his inferences were not compassionate. His inferences were not compassionate. Now, this is going to overlap a little bit with the other mistakes, but I want to bring this out because I think it's so harmful. It's so destructive. Eliphaz is about to challenge Job to think through his own life experience. He's going to answer a very important question that he believes is going to just set this record straight for Job. And so look what he says in chapter 4, back to Job. Chapter 4, we're going to look at verse 7. Job verse 7. Remember now whoever perished being innocent. Or where were the upright wiped out? According to what I have seen, those who plow wickedness and those who sow trouble harvest it. Remember now whoever perished being innocent. Think hard about this, Job. This is Eliphaz's wisdom. Have you ever remembered, this is how he's counseling him, anyone in your life Whoever perished being innocent. Where, where, where in your life have you ever seen an upright person perish? Never, right? Right? Never. In your entire life have you ever seen anybody fall. Now, don't look behind you at the tombstones of your children. I'm speaking to you. Even though your children right there and they died, and obviously the implication being is that they have done unrighteousness, don't look at the graves of the ones whom you sacrificed burnt offerings for over and over again because you thought possibly they might sin and God might uh, judge their hearts. Don't think about those kids that you loved and hoped would never die in the way you dreaded even though it finally came upon you. I'm just asking. 
I'm just saying, is that your experience? Do the innocent ever perish? Implication, never. Do you see what he's inferring? Do you see what he's... He, he, even if it's accidental, everyone who perishes is not innocent. That's his implication. Everyone who is destroyed was not upright. Haven't you seen that, Job? In other words, look, I know you still have dirt of the graves underneath your fingernails, but can you say honestly that the principle of attribution had to be applied to them too, doesn't it? Isn't that your experience of life, Job? I mean, if you're honest, wouldn't you say there has to be a little sinful disposition that brought around this horrible tragedy, right? If you're searching your soul, wouldn't you really see that that's the most reasonable answer that could be given to you? So Eliphaz, and again, you can't be, and he was, he's huge on experience. He's huge on experience and really Job's experience. In fact, his experience is more his God than his God. His understanding of experience of life is really what dictates everything he says. Which brings us to a fifth mistake, which overlaps here. His experience was not universal. His counsel was not solicited. His empathy not offered. His conclusions not reliable. His inferences were not compassionate. And next, his experience was not universal. What do I mean by that? Eliphaz judged reality according to his own personal experience of life, regardless of how limited it was. You see this phrase in Job 4.8. He's going to say, according to what I have seen, according to what I have seen, those who plow wickedness and those who sow trouble harvest it. This is my experience of life. Those who reap have sown the trouble upon themselves every single time. Look again at Job 5, 3. He says, I have seen the ignorant fool taking root, and I cursed his abode. I have seen, I realize that maybe you don't have all of the insight of this whole chapter and this whole uh, thrust of Job's argument at this point, but Eliphaz is erring so abundantly here. Eliphaz is a cultured man, he's a well-studied man, he's a man who enjoys looking at the world around him and making judgments as to what he perceives are the common denominators of life. Even at the end of his speech in chapter 5, he concludes by saying in verse 27, Behold this, we have investigated it, thus it is, hear it and know for yourself. What does he investigate? What's this experiential insight that he has gleaned? That if Job merely endures the Lord's discipline for sin, which we already know is a lie, then the Lord will not allow seven evils to touch him. I'm going to read this to you just so you get a sense of it. Chapter 5, verse 20. In famine, he will redeem you from death. This is if you're living rightly before God. And in war from hands with swords, you will be hidden from the scourge of the tongue. You will not be afraid of devastation when it comes. You will laugh at devastation and starvation, and you will not be afraid of the beast of the earth. For your covenant will be with the stones of the field, and the beast of the field will be at peace with you. You will know that your tent is at peace, for you will visit your abode and fear no loss. You will know also that your seed may be many, and your offspring as the vegetation of the land. You will come to the grave in full vigor, like the stacking of grain in its season. Behold this. We have investigated it, and so it is. Hear it and know for yourself. Let me paraphrase what he's saying. Job, if you lay out your cause 
before God and walk with him? Will you have everything you ever, you will have everything you ever dreamed of and you will have never need of anything. You will have no fear ever. One commentator says, in this twisted theology, material and physical well-being are viewed more as rewards for faith than as holy unmerited blessings, more as promised entitlements than as gracious gifts, which like all the gifts of God are distributed according to his will, referring to Hebrews 2.4. So what I'm trying to say is Eliphaz didn't have the full understanding of how God operates. He didn't have a universal appreciation for how there was much more to God's dealing with men than just what he's seen, his experience. God doesn't always reward faithfulness and blessing. And again, this is going to have to be a part of your theology when you try to counsel those that are in pain. God rewards sometimes faithfulness with hardship. You think of a Hebrews 11. How would Eliphaz dealt with Hebrews 11? There were others who were tortured, refused to be released so that you might gain even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging and some chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. What would he say to that? Would he say that that's impossible? Those whom the world was not worthy suffered? No. Eliphaz's religion was based on his personal experiences. His own personal standards of what he believes is right before God without having biblical understanding of the truth. Based on my experience, all love is acceptable before God. Right? That's our culture. Based on my personal experiences of life, all marriage is good before our maker. It's just that it has to be marriage. Bad theology. Know your Bibles. Big mistake. Which leads me to the last mistake, which I believe is the most drastic mistake. And I think this is going to shock some of you. His counsel was not solicited. His empathy was not offered. His conclusions were not reliable. His inferences were not compassionate. His experience was not universal. And lastly, his revelation was not tested. His revelation was not tested. Now prepare yourself for what I'm about to say because this might be the most mystical, bone-chilling passage in the entire book of Job. This is Eliphaz's vision from the other side. Job 4, 12 through 17. Now... Remember, he's talking to Job. Now a word was brought to me stealthily, and my ear received a whisper of it. Amid disquieting thoughts from the visions of the night, when deep sleep falls on men, dread came upon me, and trembling, and made the multitude of my bones shake in dread. Then a spirit swept by my face. The hair of my flesh bristled up, It stood still, but I could not recognize its appearance. A form was before my eyes. There was silence, and then I heard a voice. Can mankind be right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? He puts no trust even in his slaves, and against his angels he charges error. How much more those who dwell in houses of clay. (laughs) <laughs> the voice. Now, before we look at what did the voice really say, I hope you realize what you have here is Eliphaz counseling Job from his own private mystical experience. Not only was Eliphaz an experience junkie, 
on earth. He was an experienced junkie in the valley of visions. He's saying, Job, listen to me, listen to me. I want you to tell you about a message especially given to me for you. It was whispered in my ear. It was terrifying to see. My bones quivered. My teeth shattered. It was like seeing a horror movie right before my eyes. The hair in the back of my neck stood straight up. And this is what I was told concerning you, my friend. I mean, talk about theatrical. Whoa. He takes five verses to build this entire dream to its climax because it's so authoritative and supernatural. What can you say when someone comes up to you? Think about this to take a break. The, the Lord has spoken to me about you. What? What can you say when someone says, I saw you before the Lord with great big Mickey Mouse ears? Which is a true vision, as someone said. What can you say when someone says, I have received special revelation about you specifically from God? I interviewed a couple for church membership years ago who told me they wanted to start coming to Grace Church. And I said, why? And they said, because our Sunday school teacher started to exposit his dreams in class other than scripture. We knew it was time to go. You think? Yeah. <laughs> I had a dream last night. I'm going to use that as the uh, basis for my sermon today. Ooh, get out. Leave now. How do we understand these kind of things? John MacArthur says this in his book, Charismatic Chaos, about the ills of following experience-based religion. However unique an experience may be, it is capable of a number of radically different interpretations. It may be an encounter with one's own subconscious. Those who place all their emphasis on a subjective validating process eventually reduce the content of revelation and fit it to their taste. The central thing becomes that which across, comes across to me rather than what God has done and spoken. In other words, this is how I feel God is, or what I think God is saying, rather than what His Word indeed confirms. Therefore, and I hope this helps, no matter what the time period one lives in or the circumstances of life you're in, isn't it true that the only way to truly make sure that you could ever verify a so-called vision or dream or revelation would have to be first to test it against God's word, right? You would have to first say, yeah, this is what I think. First of all, I'll never tell people your dreams and you're counseling them. It's just not done. It's, it's inappropriate. And if anything, it might be, uh, it might be demonic. So, so don't do that. Exactly what you have to do here is you have to sit there and focus on truth and the application of that truth. So what's the grand conclusion that Eliphaz has worked so hard for Job to understand? Look at, again, chapter 4, verse 17. He said, the voice said this, Can mankind be right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? With, with, with all this buildup of what he was doing in his kind of spooky revelation, uh, there's some kind of behind-the-scenes glimpse into his own soul. He gives us a very odd truism in the form of a question. He says, can a human being be just or right, and can a mortal be pure before his maker? In other words, the grand conclusion to this eerie revelation was this. Job suffered because he was not righteous or holy enough before God. Again, going back to that assumption. And yet God says Job is blameless, an upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil twice in the book. Merely by comparing Scripture with Scripture, we find the truth. The revelation is not from God. Christopher Ashe, in his commentary on Job, says, The substance of Satan's challenge in chapters 1 and 2 is that no human being on earth is genuinely in the right with God. And so quite unwittingly, no doubt, and meaning well, he thinks, Eliphaz becomes here the spokesman for Satan. 
So as he's trying to help Job, he hurts him. In trying to help his friend with a word from the Lord, instead he strangles him with a word from Satan. Satan loves to confuse truth with just enough lies to blur the picture long enough for people to stay blind. So sometimes, and this is what I'm trying to say, you get bad theology from good friends. Sometimes you can get bad theology from good friends. And this is either further confirmation of this is at the very end of Job because though he is saying, Job, God is against you. Job, these things cannot be true. Job, it is bad because I know and I've seen in my own vision. Look what it says in chapter 42, verse 7 and 8. Now it happened after Yahweh had spoken these words to Job that Yahweh said to Eliphaz, My anger burns against you and against your two friends because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. You have not spoken of me that which is right. We're going to see if you keep reading the different arguments of Job and of these men against Job. But just for our sake, I want you to think through these things. I want you to think through how when you go to someone's bedside, when you go to someone who's hurting like the Lord Jesus Christ, first things and foremost is you need to be allowing yourself to be quiet. You need to allow yourself only offer suggestions when asked. You need to allow yourself to be empathetic with the other person, knowing that there's possibly no way, even if you understood the circumstances, that you understood the motives that created the calamity in the first place. You have to be thinking about not just your own experience of life, which on sometimes, some levels can be helpful, just little anecdotes to people, but ultimately what they need is the truth. As I was studying for this message, I came across a message that gave some helpful warnings to those people who can identify with Job more than those who were giving the counsel. And I thought I'd tell you this just for your consideration. When people are trying to counsel you with pain, just a few, moment, few points. Number one, be prepared. Be prepared when people are counseling you. I'm not talking about you counseling them. Now I'm talking about them counseling you. Be prepared because well-meaning people sometimes only add to your pain. Well-meaning people sometimes only add. One book calls them well-intentioned dragons. Well-intentioned, I'm I'm thinking that means fire breathing. Uh, uh, They intend well, they're just unable to walk in your sandals. If you would like a book, and I didn't turn this in in time to uh, to the bookstore, if you'd like to have a helpful book, there's a book called When Words Matter Most. When Words Matter Most by Marshall and Neuheiser. Uh, It's a book just about how to comfort with words when it is time to speak. But do be prepared. Sometimes people come and they will hurt you. They cannot grasp the depth of your pain. In fact, they really don't even want to hear about it. They really don't even want to consider it. The truth is they have God all figured out and they have your life figured out. And they just want to let you know what they think. You bear your soul to them, first thing they do is rebuke you and correct you, or worse, ignore that you even said what you said because they don't want to hear or deal with it. They would rather not have to handle your pain, and so they change the subject as quickly as they change the channel. Well-meaning, sure, but sometimes well-meaning people only add to your pain. Number two, be cautious. Wrong counsel is often more readily available than wise counsel. Bad counsel is pandemic. Since bad counsel did not stop with Eliphaz, make sure that you don't give equal weight to everybody's advice. Um, It's very, very hard. 
But you need to know that people are well-meaning, but sometimes they're so drastically wrong. Not only is it going to cause you pain, but it could cause you crippling pain for many years. Are you having trouble with your marriage? Are you having trouble with your marriage? The guy next to the cubicle at work might have a lot of advice. Uh, This is what I do, but he might be out to lunch, so you don't want to listen to him. The woman who lives next door, full of advice, but she might be biased in her own experience and failures. Not only should you choose your counselors carefully, but even if they wear a collar or have a cross hanging on the wall or watch TV or an angel star, you should filter their advice through the Word of God, common sense, and prayer. Number three, be aware. The path of pain often runs parallel to the mystery of God's plan. Pain and the will of God are often traveling companions. It doesn't have to make sense to us. The path of pain often runs parallel with the mystery of God's plan. However, your path of pain is no mystery to God, and you rest in that. There was a young theological student who came one afternoon to C.H. Spurgeon for counsel. And Spurgeon was himself a sufferer, if you've ever known his story. Many, many pressures, many physical ailments. And this student was struggling with his lack of understanding concerning some matters that were very troubling to him. And Spurgeon said, young man, allow me to give you this word of advice. You must expect to let God know some things which you do not understand. That is true. And know that as you're being counseled. How can I summarize this? D.L. Moody, many years ago, expressed that he was living in Chicago when there was a multitude of deaths that were happening with children. It was very unhealthy in the summer. And he said, I attended the funerals of a good many children. I got hardened to it like a doctor and could go to them without sympathy. One of my little scholars was drowned and word was sent by the mother that she wanted me to see it. I went. The dripping body was there on the table. The husband was a drunkard and was then in the corner drunk. The mother said she had no money to buy a shroud or coffin and wanted to know if I could not bury my little girl. I consented. I had my little girl with me then. She was about four years old. And when we got outside, she asked me, suppose we were poor pa and I had to go down to the river after sticks and I should fall down and get drowned. What would happen to me then? And he says at that point that that was the time when he learned the most about what it was really to empathize and to have his heart broken. She said, did you feel bad for that mother? And I clasped her to my hand and I kissed her and my sympathy was aroused. My friends, if you want to get in sympathy with people, consider how you would feel in their place. Let us working for the master have compassion on the unfortunate and sympathy on those who need our sympathy. Here's a little trick, and then I'll end with this. If someone says to you, my, my son has fallen away, then ask yourself, what if my son had fallen away? If someone says, my mother is sick with cancer, ask yourself, how would I feel if my f- mother was sick with cancer? Don't confuse sympathy, they're there, I'm so sorry, with empathy, you relating to their situation as if it was you. That produces weeping with those who weep and also, conversely, rejoicing with those who rejoice. Don't allow yourself to give medicine before you know the exact antidote that's necessary. And allow yourself also, if anything else, anything else that I say that could be helpful, choose to be quiet longer. Choose to cry with those who cry. Choose to squeeze a hand and to have a smile rather than Let the whole world know how brilliant you are. 
Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time in your word. Thank you for the patience of these dear folks who have been waiting and now listen and allow whatever is of your will in this message to help them, to encourage them, and to equip them, not only for the giving of counsel, but the receiving of it as well. And we ask these things in Christ's precious name. Amen. Thank you for coming.